Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Tristan Bilash, explores with me the importance and the challenge of allowing patients to identify themselves in whatever way they are comfortable at that point in their lives. Crucial to how we respond to people in distress. My guest on the podcast is Tristan Bilash. Tristan, I'm delighted to have you on the show this morning, my morning, your evening. <laughs> I want to start with something that you've said, I think in writing somewhere, and you talk about there being no spare parts, mm-hmm. and you're talking about human organs. What do you mean by that? Well, the context for my reference to spare parts is the understanding of being transgender, people's assumptions of what it means to be transgender, especially for people who are transitioning binarily, you know, from female to male, male to female. That's kind of where the vernacular and the conversation historically has gone. That's most people that I run into. That's how they they're able to grasp the concept from binary transgender people's transitions. And so I think that definitely the people who come to this conversation about being transgender and they see it in the context of body parts that either don't belong, do not resonate with them, or or the vice versa. And I think that there's definitely just an assumption that for someone like me who was assigned female at birth, that, you know, I had breasts and one could say that those are spare parts. Yes, those are parts that cause me dysphoria, but it doesn't mean because those parts don't resonate with me and don't didn't belong with me doesn't mean that I couldn't honor them, you know, as being part of me. And that's where part of my story in regards to ovarian cancer kind of, it really kind of started to sink in with with my ovarian cancer surgery and outcome. So talk about the early years before any of this had happened, you would have been, as you say, you were born female and you knew that something wasn't quite right. How was healthcare responding to you at that time? Well, I'm I'm very much understanding the context of the time. So I was born in 1973. And I can say that, you know, for me, I I was a boy from the start. I, I thought I was a boy until I was told I wasn't <laughs> by by some kids on the playground, really, is where it, my life kind of took a different trajectory in relation to my own body. But I think it was later in my teens when I started having issues uh, physically. Again, my, you know, I wasn't menstruating the way other people my age were starting to menstruate. The menstruation was always an issue. And whenever I went to physicians with all this pain, which we know now those were all symptoms and signs of ovarian cancer, but definitely, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, we just didn't have the knowledge that we do now. 
And it was very much written off. Well, I won't say written off. They did what they could with what the knowledge they had at the time. They, they classified it as irritable bowel syndrome. And so it was very much a conversation where, you know, I just kept getting told to take Metamucil, <laughs> you know. But that was what my relationship with doctors and my body became. It was all about this, we don't know what's causing it, we think it's this, and we'll keep an eye on things because we want to make sure that you're menstruating properly. What do we need to do? We need to put you on the pill because we need to make sure you're menstruating. And that's, that's kind of, that leads me up to my late teens, early 20s. Very frustrating because I was very much, you know, I was, I was struggling with lots of things, <laughs> um, you know, regular teenage stuff, but just this added dynamic in that I was struggling with being really disassociated from my body because it just did not fit. It didn't resonate with me. Did you feel at that time that the realization had dawned on any of the health professionals that you were working with that this wasn't just a problem with your menstruation, that there was something that was more troubling for you? I saw quite a few physicians over the years and it kept being directed back to irritable bowel syndrome, depression and anxiety. And I saw, started seeing specialists in my 20s because the pain and the discomfort got even worse, like the physical pain and discomfort, as well as psychological pain. But there was one wonderful general physician that I, I saw very briefly, and he was the one that, upon meeting me, right away started doing tests and ordered the scans, the ultrasound that led to me being diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome in my very early 20s. So that is when I, that's probably the first time in my life where I felt like I was being taken seriously on, my, on the physical symptom side. This is a very typical story in that healthcare loves its labels. It loves to say irritable bowel syndrome. We know we, what we can do about that. Take some Metamucil. Uh, depression, we know we can we can prescribe medications for that and we can send you off to see a psychologist for cognitive behavior therapy. Polycystic ovaries, oh yes, we've got a cure for that. But we never see people in the context in which they're presenting. Did you feel at any point that somebody might have said, yes, this is one aspect of the diagnosis, but what about the whole of you? What about the context in which you are presenting with these issues? Honestly, I did not experience that at all. It wasn't until probably in the last 10 years that I had physicians in my world that really did see and hear and honor me as a whole entire person, was my experience. The, the majority of them were just trying to figure out what was physically wrong. And, you know, a couple of them trying to help, but very much it was very, you know, clinical and medical in its approach and and the emotional and psychological toll that's for the counselors we're going to deal with your body and your body isn't working properly for for a woman and we need to make it work properly for for being a woman i didn't have anybody ask me about um what these parts mean to me if they're even important to me 
and and I and I, I acknowledge and recognize that not all transgender men feel the way that I feel. Um, transgender men are get pregnant. You know, there's there's a lot more we a lot more understanding nowadays than there was back then, even. But no, nobody that I can recall really kind of you know uh, recognize something that something else might be going on. You're uniquely placed to create a different experience for people who are coming into healthcare today. Guide us through that. How do you feel that we can be more honoring of the whole person given your experience of what it's been like for you? You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. You know, I've, I've done quite a few presentations over the last few years, locally and nationally and so forth. And one of the things that keeps coming to the forefront for me is not to make assumptions, never make assumptions. And as the, the you know, social work 101 adage is, Start where the client is. Start where the patient is. It's so important. And what I try to communicate to people, too, is that for me, I, I see transitioning now as it's a lifelong process. You know, we use the word transition in many different contexts. But I find that the very wonderful allies and well-meaning, supportive coworkers and, and people that I talk to, they're trying to wrap their head around it. So they want things compartmentalized. And I'm trying to share that with them and help them understand and kind of bridge that understanding, but also remind people transitions aren't always linear. I was a transgender person back then, but I didn't have the language for it. I was on my own journey of gender identity. And so, and just because somebody walks into your office and, and they may not voice to you that they are struggling with dysphoria, gender dysphoria or something, we can't make assumptions. We shouldn't make assumptions. It's more, I think it's more powerful and positive of experience to really start with clean slate. And just because maybe my patient comes in and they, and they share and they're open enough and safe, feel safe enough to share that they're non-binary, I can't assume that that's what, it's, it's not static, you know, for, for some people, gender really isn't a static state. And we have to keep that in mind that there's people who are, you know, gender fluid. So it's, I get it though. People are just, they're trying to be, they're trying to improve their knowledge and their understanding. And that's amazing. And we need that, but we also need to keep in mind, we don't know where somebody is at in their journey. 10 years ago, I walk into physician's offices. I'm transgender, but I haven't told anybody. And I'm presenting as a woman. We still shouldn't assume what I want, what my goals are, what my healthcare goals are. You use the word safe, and I, I'm really interested in that concept. How do doctors who, to this day, I believe, still are not sure how to respond, how do they make you feel safe in that situation where, as you say, it's not a linear process and mm. the person the person may feel differently tomorrow the way they feel today. They may, they may want different things in their lives. 
How do we make people feel safe about this whole area of gender? Mm-hmm. I strongly feel that starting with where the patient enters the healthcare system, whether it's mental health, physical health, that is where the key rapport building and creating, a, you know, an, and we want an authentic place of safety for them. And I hear the word in transgender advocacy circles, of course, we don't want anything performative. Yes, you may have a, a trans flag on your door, but that doesn't tell me that I, that my, you just found a flag and you put it up, but really behind closed doors, you haven't done integration of what it means to provide, you know, trans, I call it transgender knowledgeable care. <laughs> And so I think it starts in those first look places that starts with intake forms. You know, it's such a, it changes even me where I'm at in my you know life. And I've, like I said, I've been in the queer community, part of the queer community almost 30 years. And I still look for those little signals on intake forms. But when I see on an intake form pronouns, <laughs> I, it, it changes my energy. And for, we know research has shown that transgender people are more susceptible to not seeking out healthcare because of negative and uh, negative healthcare experiences and discriminatory healthcare experiences. So healthcare providers really have a challenge because, but you know, but I see it as an opportunity to help redefine what healthcare can be like for that for that person. It is probable even today that doctors will not be in charge of the policies or the way that things are set out at the front office. So you walk in and you have literally no control over what posters are put up and what language is being used. Mm -hmm. But once you step into that private room where you've got the doctor and the patient, that's when they can do whatever they feel is appropriate for the patient. And that's, I guess, where I'm coming to this conversation. How do you feel that that can be a better experience? Because that doesn't cost anything. It doesn't require the printing of any new resources. It requires the doctor to be present. How can they do that? You know, I'll, I'll preface this with, I'm, I've been in situations where I've seen physicians who I know they didn't read my chart, healthcare providers that didn't read my chart. And if they'd read my chart, they would have walked into the room knowing I'm a transgender man with a history of ovarian cancer. And so if I'm in a room with a healthcare provider and they're asking me, because it's relevant, uh, Tristan, tell me about your healthcare history. What, what are your pronouns? Like starting some, some of that simple language even. I think there's, there's certain cues too that healthcare providers can use. Like, hi, I'm Dr. I'm, I'm Dr. Bailash. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. What's your name? And that simple sentence, it's a door. It really is. It, it shows, it's demonstrating to the patient that this is somebody who is going to be uh, respectful of, of my gender identity, regardless of what it is. At least they're starting the conversation from a place of, you know, I can tell if somebody's educated and done the work to try to understand my experience. And I apologize, I don't have all of the intricate details or nuance on how to create that completely safe experience from beginning to end of the visit. But I think it comes from sincere, 
authentic, compassionate place, I as a patient can feel that. And that's what I try to do in my patients that I work with in my cancer center is just truly show them that I truly care about them and I want to help them as best as I can. You've done a brilliant job just by saying, let's set the context. The context is as you've described it. Dr. So-and-so, my pronouns are, what are your pronouns? How would you like me to approach this? And by the way, I have read your chart and I do know the context in which you are coming to this meeting. That's really useful. And then mm-hmm. beyond that, I don't think it's any different from anyone with any other condition, is it really? Yeah. Because you want the doctor to be present. Step away from the computer, as I often say to mm-hmm. my own students. Look the person in the eye, point your elbows and knees at them. Yes. And allow silences. Yes. Because the patient will fill those silences with things that matter to them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When, as we're talking too, I'm thinking about, I, I can't speak for everybody, of course, you know, especially I can't speak for everybody in the transgender community. <laughs> and I know that there are, are, there are transgender people that feel it's very, it's very rude of physicians to ask about their body parts, to ask about their, their gender identity. And I haven't figured out a way to, <laughs> personally, I mean, for me personally, I've, I think I've had, I've decided to be a very open book a long time ago because I wanted to change the way things the way healthcare was being provided for transgender people. And so I, I don't have that perspective. That doesn't resonate with me to, to, to keep, I, I'm not offended by any of those questions. But I know that there's a lot of trans people that feel very strongly that physicians shouldn't be asking about certain parts of the body if it's not relevant. You go to the dentist, why does it matter that you're transgender? Actually, for me, I understand why it matters because if I'm on testosterone, that the dentist is actually quite interested what hormones I'm on. But I understand that because I have that knowledge, whereas other people may not, and they just see it as a very offensive experience. So in that way, they don't feel safe. But for me, I again, it's just that context of, of who we are and where we come from. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. It is difficult, you're right, and no one sets out to be offensive, and no one wants to know, no one wants to deliberately cause distress to anyone. Yeah. And I guess my question was, how? Is there a way to ensure that that doesn't happen even from the get-go? Because it's important that the relationship is established. Because once the relationship is established, you can start to work on whatever matters to that person. Work with them. As you say, start with where they're at. My mind goes so many different directions. (laughs) There's so many different types of rooms that a person might walk into and different healthcare providers and different reasons to be in that room. 
And so there isn't a one size fits all. And I know that that's the frustrating part for healthcare providers and agencies and allies to be, because really so far the people that I've, that I've met along the way, they really care. They really want to improve their understanding and improve their, their knowledge because they want to provide that safe space. But it's so different for so many different demographics within the trans community. I think that it's really about learning, about communicating with your local 2SLGBTQ, you know, organizations and finding out because maybe, maybe there's different, maybe, maybe safety means something different in Australia than it does here in the middle of the prairies in Canada. Like for a trans person, we have different laws, we have different protections. And so safety is different. Definitely in the States, say, you know, the United States right now, safety means something different for trans people than it does up here in Canada. So I hope I don't mean to, I'm not trying to skirt around the, the question, but I, I really strongly believe that it, it starts, it starts with people and not just like a one hour education session <laughs> in, in medical school, there needs to be it needs to be integrated because there's so much to learn about transgender people's healthcare needs. They're different than cisgender healthcare, cisgender people's healthcare needs. And I think that I can tell when somebody, when a healthcare provider walks into the room and they've done their homework, <laughs> that makes, that puts me at ease. That makes me feel safe. And then all the other things Moyes, that I see the clues in the room, the language they use, they use the word partner, they use their pronouns, those, all of those together. It's kind of a dance and it requires all of the, the different, or, or a recipe, all the different ingredients, but there isn't one recipe for every, every situation, right? It's frustrating for me too. I wish I could have that magical answer for everybody and, and, uh, and give them that to, to be able to have that experience. But it starts with a conversation. It starts with acknowledging that there is an issue that needs to be addressed and that we can do better. And let's start with the place where we say, what can I do to make you more comfortable? I guess that's the, the, the key thing. That's a beautiful question. And equally, it's, it's important for the patient to make sure that their doctor also feels comfortable and safe in that environment and that this is something that is a partnership and, is, and is, you're looking for a partnership more than anything else because that's ultimately how we all win. Yes, I agree. And that's a beautiful, beautiful question to ask. But transgender people, many transgender people are used to being otherfied and sexualized and reduced down to their body parts. And so acknowledging that, that human in front of you, that might be where they're coming from. And that's, so that's a, the, the question that you had. That's a beautiful question. You know, what do you need? Where can we start? Let's have a conversation. Talk about the good experiences, because that may be another place that we can begin to understand your perspective, mm -hmm. a good experience that you had, which has stayed with you? Because I imagine that in the 70s and 80s, the experiences were less than good because of the reductionist 
view of medicine and also because people didn't understand. But yeah. Things have improved since then. So give us an yeah. example of a good one. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Yeah, I've, I've been blessed. I have had, throughout my transition, my medical transition, all positive experiences from, and I really credit my, my psychologists along the way who, who walked with me through my journey and realization, you know, and it really just supported me and allowed me to explore it because their, their ability to, to make me feel safe, to just explore it was what I needed. So it started with them. And I, again, I just lucked out. I had the most amazing family physician who retired and it took about five new physicians to replace him. <laughs> and I remember when I was going to start testosterone and I needed to talk to him about it. I didn't know how he felt. I knew that he, I mean, he treated me as a, as a, you know, a woman presenting <laughs> person for years, but I didn't know how he felt about transgender uh, people. And so I went to him the one day I had actually called and asked to switch doctors because I heard about a, a transgender, you know, affirming physician in the city. And I walked into his office and he said, so I, I, I heard you reached out, you know, to, to see Dr. Such and Such. And I just froze. And he said, I just want you to know that I'm I've treated many transgender patients. I've helped a lot of people get onto testosterone and, and I'm here for you. I can help you too. And he smiled. And I thought, why, how could I not trust this? I've trusted this human all these years. And, but it, I mean, I'm, I'm be, I need to be more gentle with myself too in that situation. I just didn't know. And the doctor that took over for him has, is amazing. And I have a lot of young doctors in my world, to be honest, on my, in my village, my healthcare village. And I love it because they're, they're fresh and they're excited. They want to learn. They had, even though they didn't have really extensive education modules about 2SLGBTQ patients, they had a lot more than the other physicians that might have been older. And so I've been able to help them understand because they are coming into new practices they, they haven't maybe had many trans patients yet. And I know that for some trans pa people, that's, they don't want to be a guinea pig. They feel like a guinea pig. And I, again, I chose to see it in a different way. I see that we're still part of this. We're still part of the history. We're still part of the pioneering of trans research and trans healthcare. I think it's a really great time and a great opportunity. I know that not everybody's comfortable like me to do that, but I'm really if I can be a part of helping people understand, then that's, that's kind of what I feel like I've survived every weird, crazy thing I've been through in this world. Almost stage, almost stage four ovarian cancer couldn't take me out. There must have been a reason. So this is, this is part of why I think I'm here. Healthcare is evolving and we are at the point where there is a clear recognition that given the rate at which science is progressing, Mm -hmm. And our understanding of the human mind uh, is progressing. Yes. Doctors simply cannot keep up with this. And therefore, it has to be a partnership between 
the doctor and the patient, and pioneers like yourself who have walked the walk mm -hmm. and have recognized where the resources are that will assist are going to be key to us doing our jobs better mm -hmm. or doing our jobs at all, frankly, because the rate at which we're progressing is so rapid that we need to, to recognize that this is what's happening. So where are those partnerships? You can talk about the local ones that you have, but there are probably international ones as well. Where can I say to my next patient mm -hmm. who may be facing a similar challenge, I don't have all the answers, which is true, but I yeah. know somebody who can or somebody, an organization that can help you to yeah. walk this walk. Where are those? You said something that I connected a couple of dots that I hadn't before when we were talking about how to, you know, like you said, the, the physician that walks in the room, they don't, they may not have access or input to the rest of the building and what's on walls and, and how forms are worded and things like that. And so that's where I'll bring it back to, you know, kind of calling on the troops, calling on the, the, the other people that are other stakeholders and people part of the, the cancer center or the health, you know, the healthcare facility. I'm within the system. I can go and that's part of what I can do. Maybe I have the connection to the director or the people that create the, the communications team that are creating those. And so we all kind of work together so that when the patient walks into that room with the physician, it's part of, again, it's part of that entire song. It's not just the physician that's creating that safe space. It's all of these other uh, people that are, that are putting in effort to, to create change and yeah, I just wanted to mention that because it uh, wanted to acknowledge, yes, it shouldn't be all on the physicians for sure. We're all only human. <laughs> for So one of the things, why I, why I am so open about being trans and ovarian cancer survivor is because I I know there's other people out there, other trans men who who have gynecological cancers, but I have yet to meet them. And I I want to keep putting myself out there just to let that person who may be there, maybe they're not out to themselves even, or it's not safe, it's physically not safe for them to, to come out. Just know that they're not alone, that there is someone else out there who, who's been through it. And as for resources, wow, my brain goes tons of places. I have like a Rolodex of resources in my brain <laughs> over, the, over the years of working in oncology. I think that there's many different resources. I, I don't think there's going to be like a one-stop shop for resources. And I think that's the beauty of it. I, I really do. I used to say like in university when I was learning about feminism and it dawned on me, you know, the strength of feminism is that you can't pinpoint it. There's so much diversity. So you think you targeted it, you know, and somebody's going to criticize it. You actually won't, you know, there's, there's a plethora of other angles to it. So in regards to resources, I mean, I, I know of some fantastic, you can start at the national level. You know, here in Canada, we have Young Adult Cancer Canada. And I think the cancer centers are here. We all have social workers. That's a, that's a great place for someone to start. If we're talking about cancer care, 
and just that networking that's happening in the States. There's the National LGBT Organization and um, actually uh, the Live Through This organization in the UK. And I think people assume too that everybody everybody has a computer or a phone or access to the internet and that's not the case. You know, that isn't the case. So I, I try to be mindful what, what kind of supports are, are local that somebody could walk in and, and talk to somebody. And I think a great place to start is with local, local uh, 2S LGBT health organizations, if you have any. And really it's also to putting the word out, having the posters up at, you know, local spots that, you know, and there's just those little moments that we, we don't know what kind of seeds are planted, but I walk by a poster and I see, oh, hey, they have a transgender affirming physician here. Wow. I'm going to, you know, and, and there are more places like that here in Canada anyway, that have specific clinics for it. Not everybody, again, not everybody wants to be out, need, you know, some people, they, they're, they're stealth and they don't want to be out. But I think that I really hope that we get to a place where everybody really feels safe to just be them, to be their authentic selves and, and not have to come out. They just get to be themselves and they get the support that they need. And they don't have to out themselves in order to get the support. A lot, a lot of wisdom there, Tristan, and a lot of guidance for people on where to even start along this in this relationship. So if you had three wishes, we can give you three wishes. I wish I had okay. more, but let's give you three. Three wishes for the future for anyone today mm -hmm. who walks into a doctor's clinic or any healthcare facility unsure of what to expect. My wishes are that every person walks into the healthcare office and sees themselves reflected somewhere, acknowledged somewhere, but definitely on the intake forms and that intake process. That is where, for many people, the relationship is established as to what the trajectory of the kind of care experience they're going to have. So that's number one. Number two, my second wish is I would love to have a transgender. Again, I come from the world of oncology, so that's, you know, kind of where I'm, well, that's where I come from. <laughs> so I, I would love to see a, a, an international network of transgender cancer support resources. And we're, we're getting there. There's a fantastic organization in Canada called Queering Cancer. QueeringCancer.ca is the, is the website. And they're an amazing group of, of volunteers that provide a hub of, of support and resources. And I think what I'm learning is there's a lot more organizations like that that exist that even I who's you know got my hands in this all the time didn't realize and I think it would be fantastic to to connect them all in some way and and have have you know more conversations kind of a obscure wish but it's a wish and my third wish would be 
that the educational programs for our healthcare physicians have a really strong integrated series of modules for providing care and working with to us LGBTQ people. Yeah, if I've only if I only have three, then those are the three <laughs> for now. Tristan Bilash, I am certain that working together, we can grant you your three wishes. I think they are only a whisper away from where we are today. The world is changing. The world is becoming smaller. The world is becoming more understanding our ability to assimilate the ideas that you're talking about is increasing exponentially. Thank you so much for leading us on this journey. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing to make people's lives better, whatever their gender orientation. We are indebted to you. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.